Well, thank you for being here for this very special Sunday interview with the rabbi. Let me read to you from Ephesians. We've been in a series called Strong, and it's from Paul's letter to the early believers at Ephesus. And, and these are some words that will help prepare our hearts and our minds today. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I pray that this time will speak in a very personal way into your lives. Uh, Rabbi Joseph Rosenfarb and I have been friends for about three decades. So for a little over 30 years, we've had times together and we've shared uh, great moments together in teaching, in, in classroom teaching settings. Uh, here's a few pictures of him where recently I was with him in a 90-minute session. He did the entire history of Judaism in 90 minutes. It was utterly amazing. And, uh, you know, you're going to be very well served this morning. Would you please welcome Rabbi Joseph Rosenthal. All right, so let's get right to it. Explain salvation. I'll give you an easy one. Explain salvation. Explain salvation. First of all, I want to know, who's the old guy in the pictures? <laughs> it's not me, right? That's you, sir. Oh, Lord. I took those pictures myself. <laughs> Salvation, let's go back to the beginning. <clears throat> Here is God, he says, let us make man in our tselem and in our demut, in our image and in our likeness. So mankind is created in the image of God, right? We have the image of God. And uh, he, God is love, so God creates Adam out of love. Adam receives this love. He's in constant communication with this love. Receiving love, unquestioning of the creator, his father. Uh, every definition that God gives him, he accepts completely, implicitly. There's no arguments, there's no questioning, there's no nothing. But it's not that good because Adam is created to love. So God gives him Eve to love. See, we're not created to be loved, but to love. So Adam gets a woman. He loves her. She loves him. All seems very good. There's all kinds of trees in the garden. Uh, they're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? The knowledge of good and evil is our knowledge of good and evil. That means what we consider good and evil as opposed to being defined by God. Do you catch that? We eat of the tree of what we consider good and evil. We get it wrong all the time, right? God was giving the definitions. Now, they're looking at this tree all the time, and they're not bothered by it. They're not tempted by it, maybe it doesn't even look good, I don't know, but it's there, and nobody's bothering with it, except then the serpent comes along and talks to Eve, and hey, Eve, consider this tree, and all of a sudden she says, ooh, consider this tree, you pointed this tree out now. 
Yeah, you know, if you eat of this tree, uh, you'll be like God. You see the trick there? The serpent wanted her to strive to be who she already was. You see? She was already, he was already in the image of God. But now you're going to be like God. Well, you're already like God, but I'm going to trick you into striving for it. So now Eve is bent towards that tree. Eve thinks she's going to get something that she needs out of that tree instead of this way. Instead of going to the Heavenly Father, Adam doesn't do that. He doesn't say, God, the serpent told Eve about this tree. What do you say about it? He doesn't do that, right? He's bent towards her. So um, he needs from her instead of needing from the Father. So they eat of the tree, and what happens? They're forced out of the garden because something has changed. They feel ashamed. They feel naked. Their shame connects with the guilt, binds guilt to them, and produces condemnation. So they figure, I'm going to take some fig leaves. I'm going to make some fig leaves. We're going to make some fig leaves. We're going to hide among the trees. God won't know the difference between us and the trees. Right? Nice mentality. As if God couldn't figure it out. So uh, you know the story. Now, the question is, why did God not just leave them in the garden? And the answer is that if they were left in the garden, something had changed. Sin had entered the world. Their relationship was broken. They would have eaten of the tree of life. And do you see what would happen? They'd be in their sin state forever. So God, in his mercy, in his grace, takes them out of the garden and clothes them out of love and then evolves a plan whereby they're going to be restored. They're going to get that image back. They've lost the image, but they're going to get the image back, right? So what happens is God concocts a, um, a, a system of animal sacrifices and so forth and so on. And uh, finally, he brings the ultimate sacrifice himself. And what does that mean? It means that, you know, if you, if you shop in Nordstrom's, it's different than shopping in Target. You know why? It's more expensive. They have probably better quality clothes, and you pay, pay more for the clothes. So God sent the ultimate price because we were that valuable. You're that valuable that God himself comes and pays the price. Isn't that remarkable? So what is happening here is we're receiving the gift of redemption. We're receiving back the image of God. We are dead to the old person with sin and made alive in the baptism and in the resurrection of the Messiah. Uh, we're made alive into it. We're transformed. We have a new creature. We have a new personality. We have, we're born again of God's spirit. And so we're made alive again. We get the image back, and now we have that connection of love, right? Connection of love. We're back in the garden. That's true. We're back in the garden of God, and now what we're going to do in that garden, uh, we're, we're going to, okay, this person in the front row, I don't know what your name is, but you offend me. So what am I going to, I'm just making it up, okay? <laughs> you were in the front row, you, you paid the price, you know. <clears throat> you offend me. So now I'm going to take that offense and I'm going to say, God, you did not create me to be offended, and that's not who you are anyway. You didn't know what you were doing. I'm not going to take offense, flesh. No, you're not taking offense. God, in that offense, I'm bringing this to you. And I believe your word that I am made righteous and holy and undefiled and I have favor with you and you value me, God. I believe all of that. And the grace of God enters my life, lifts up the new creature that I am, and I say, whoa, that's me. Not, to, not created to be offended. I'm not offended. I'm loved. 
And so we're born again of God's Spirit, receiving love, becoming love, and disseminating love. Good. All right. <laughs> we haven't stumped the rabbi yet. Okay, so uh, you, you just were talking about born again. Jesus has that great moment, uh, John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Uh, he uses the terminology born again yeah. with this great leader of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. What was Jesus trying to get through to Nicodemus? Okay. The whole story of the prophets is to bring people into covenant relationship with God. But if you read uh, the story of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah, the people got into the habit of thinking, well, we have the land of Israel, so we have God. We have the temple, so we have God. And God is constantly reminding the people, listen here, you don't have me unless there's a heart transformation, a heart connection. Just, I don't even want your sacrifices if the heart is not in it. If your heart is not transformed, the sacrifices don't mean anything. But we kept evolving this system over and over and over of what? Of doing things in order to please God and to get his favor when we already had his favor. God wanted to circumcise our heart. We said we're circumcised in the flesh, so we have God. See, we turned it around. We, it, it was all about the creature instead of the creator. And then by the time you get to Nicodemus, we believe as a people that we have the Torah, the instruction of God. Now, what is the instruction of God? Well, you've got uh, Cain that slew his brother Abel, right? No consequences. I know he was sent away with a mark. That's a big deal. Abel is dead, and he gets away with murder, right? Uh, the, the nobles uh, before the flood, they grab women like crazy. Whoever they want, they grab them. No consequences. Noah comes out of the ark and disobeys the way in which he should come out of the ark, no consequences. Judah has a relationship with Tamar, uh, no consequences. The, the village of Shechem, the city of Shechem is decimated, no consequences. Over and over and over. So God gives the Torah, the law, the instruction to limit transgression. Torah is from the word yarat, to throw. You can only go that far and get no further. You can do that much and you can't go beyond that. Why? So we can live an orderly life. We can live a life that we're not taking each other's wives and taking each other's monies, and we're living in a decent way. And God said, when the peoples uh, will see you as a nation, they'll say, what a, what a wise people, what wise laws. And they'll be drawn to me because of you. Now, he's idealizing this. So the Torah can't save anybody. The instruction of God cannot save anybody. That's only by faith. We see that. Paul says that. Uh, Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. It's always connection. Why do you think that David and Bathsheba were not stoned? The Torah says they should be stoned. They weren't stoned because there was connection. There was mercy. There was grace, right? So now here's the Torah. We as a people are thinking, uh, you know what? Uh, we have the Torah, so we must be saved, right? We must have God. Yeshua is saying to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. You're a high in the uh, uh, Sanhedrin, but you don't understand. You've been sold a bell of goods. The Torah cannot save you. The temple cannot save you. The land of Israel cannot save you. Only being born again, a transformation can save you. A transformation away from sin and towards me. That's the only thing that can save you. So he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And finally, Nicodemus catches it. He understands it. And he shows up with Joseph of Arimathea. He shows up, yeah, at the very end. Yeah. Every time I'm in a Jewish synagogue, there's always 
a remembrance in some way, whether a reading or a spoken word about the Exodus. It's so important, so foundational. What do Christians need to know about the Exodus? And just as a little add-on, how did the Red Sea part? Okay. So I, I told you last time you should have gone to Universal Studios. I saw, I saw Charlton Heston do it, but I'm not sure that was how it worked. All right. So here's the story. Ladies, you will uh, attach yourselves to this. It's really a birth experience, a born-again experience, if you will. Uh, the baby is in Egypt. The baby cries out. There's pain in Egypt. The birth canal of the Red Sea is opened up. The baby goes through the birth canal, and on the other side, the birth canal closes up. And what is there? Water and blood. It's the birth of a nation. We're going from a clan-based mentality, slave-based mentality in Egypt to a nation mentality, a nation that is holy, a nation that is rediscovering the true character of God, rediscovering how people should live, kind of a garden experience, see? So it's such an important event that even the meaning of Shabbat, Sabbath, is changed. Sabbath meant the corporate celebration of the kingdom of God on earth. The celebration of creation, the celebration of our own creation being the apex of all of creation, the rest that we have in God on a perpetual basis. Now, added to that, and the scripture adds this, is the added feature in, on every Shabbat. You remember how God took us out of Egypt and redeemed us with an outstretched hand. It's a born-again experience. All of Scripture leads us to understanding we, there's got to be a transformation somehow. Uh, in the New Testament, of course, it's a transformation from the inside out, which is the best way, right? A completely changed human being. So the exodus uh, occurs, and the people all over the known world hear about that, and they're startled. Jethro's startled into saying, Atayadati, now I know that God is the Lord. He's the Lord. I see it now, right? So how did the Exodus, how did the uh, Red Sea part? God sent a, sent a wind all night long. He parts it. And you can imagine the event. Here are the people, about probably close to 3 million people, going through the birth canal there. And uh, water's on both sides. You can't see the other side. There's people in front of you. There's furniture in front of you. There's food in front of you, little kids and whatnot. And it's, it's got to be by faith that these walls are there. The people are going straight through. And then finally the waters come back and the Egyptians are destroyed and they are saved. Sigh of relief. Thank you, God. It's an amazing event. Other than Jesus, who's your biblical hero and why? Daniel. Why? I love Daniel. Da nothing bad is spoken of about Daniel. Here's a guy with tremendous administrative skills. He's way up there in the government. You know, most of us would be bogged down with that kind of a job, but he doesn't find his identity in that job. He prays three times a day to his God. He reads the holy books. He tries to work out. He is a man concerned for his people, so much so that he identifies with their sin. God, I ask forgiveness for my sin and for their sin, right? An intercessor. He is a person who has the true prophetic gifting of being the intercessor between God and the people and loves the people, goes into the lion's den, okay, I'm going to go into the lion's den, I'm connected to God, whatever will happen will happen, but I'm connected to him. It's an amazing story about a guy who trusted God implicitly. 
I'm going where the lions are. All right, God, you see, you're walking with me, right? I'm going into, and then you, you know what the story is, right? This incredible story. So I love Daniel. Daniel. All right, so let's get a little personal and real. What's your biggest challenge in leading a synagogue? It's, it's that the people are crazy. They're crazy. So-and-so hurt my feelings. I'm not coming anymore. So-and-so hurt my feelings, so you get little terrorist cell over here. Do you know what so-and-so said to me? Oh, yeah. I heard, I, I heard that. I, somebody told me that. Didn't you tell me that? Didn't you tell me that? Then you got a little terrorist cell, right? Then it's kind of like, uh, uh, hey, did you hear what the rabbi said? Is the rabbi okay? I, I might have offended them. I might have said something they didn't like. So this is how they passively aggressive get back at me. You know, the rabbi didn't look good today. He didn't look good. Today. You think he's okay? Let's get together and pray for him, right? This is not, you know what this is. This is all subterfuge. And what is my job? What's the biggest challenge? Um, I love the preaching. I love the teaching and so forth and so on. But my challenge is to get people to connect this way, right? Not this way. Not connecting to the hurt. Not connecting to the lack. Not connecting to what their spouse did or what their parents did, but connecting this way. God, I ha somebody labeled me stupid today. But God, you haven't created me to feel stupid. This is my flesh that's patterned to feel stupid, to cater to me and pat my head and go to the rabbi's office for an hour. And oh, I understand how you feel. And, you know, and I do. I've been there many times. I understand. But see, leaving you there isn't loving you, right? So then, okay, it's time for us to bring this hurt to God. And God, you love me and you believe that I'm of great worth and you've made me righteous and holy and undefiled and I'm an heir to the kingdom. And you proclaim everything that the word of God has said, who you are in him, and then God's grace that's active, comes into our life, lifts up the new creature and says, that's who you are, that's who I am. Wow, that person is not hurt by that label. First of all, that label is true. That person, God forgive that person. They didn't know what they would, were doing. If they knew, they wouldn't have done it. God, I just released them and I come to you and I have connection with you now. See, that's what I want to teach our people. That's what I'm learning. That's what I'm living, okay? I'm still growing in that. I want our people, right? I don't want them to call me with the same thing over and over and over. I'm just going to tell them the same thing over. I don't have a PhD in psychology. I didn't read all the right books. I read a lot of books. I, I don't read them anymore. I, I connect, connecting people to him. Manifesting the kingdom of God. Every chance I get and telling the people, you manifest the kingdom of God wherever you are. Good answer. Hey, um, hundreds of Messianic prophecies. Hundreds. And everybody's waiting for the Messiah. And then it's the first century. Here's Jesus, and a lot of Jews miss that he's the Messiah. Why? Okay. So I'm going to go back to the story uh, I said last time. There was in the fourth century, and I could go back beyond this. It's the same spirit. And a family from the family of Joseph Tobias called the Tobiads were extreme. They were, they were like the trillionaires back then in the fourth century. And they were Hellenists, and they loved Hellenism. 
Greek philosophy, so forth and so on. And they connected with priests and uh, began to jointly rule. So you know what happens when money joins religion, right? Uh, all of a sudden, the priests who were not supposed to accrue wealth, accrue property, they began to be very wealthy. They accrued power. Um, when Cyrus sent uh, the Jewish people back into the land, he did it with the proviso. The priests have to be in charge. I don't want a king in charge. A king will lead a rebellion. Uh, the priests go back there. They build the temple, uh, and the deity of the temple agrees to have me in charge. It's all very interesting. Uh, but the priests were in charge, and so what happens is the priesthood becomes corrupted, right? And uh, they have the book of Leviticus, and they're going by that, and everybody has to live by that. And that's what the common people are, are hearing. Uh, you have to be clean, you have to be pure, so forth and so on. A reaction to that is the Pharisees, uh, the Essenes are another group, uh, the Zealots are another group. So, along comes Yeshua, and he's not a member of any party. He's not a Republican, he's not a Democrat, he's not a Libertine. He's not an independent, right? He represents the kingdom of God, right? So the Pharisees encounter him, and uh, they believe, as the rest of them believe, if we do the Torah, we're righteous. And Yeshua is saying, yeah, if that's true, then how come you're so corrupt? Right? You're teaching good things, but how, what, there's something wrong here, right? You're corrupted. Now, I, I don't know about you, but nobody likes to be told that they're corrupt, that they're, they're in sin. So the Pharisees uh, basically are asking him, are you one of us? He says, no, I'm from the kingdom of God. I represent the kingdom of God. Well, you can't be the Messiah. You're not one of us. Sadducees, are you one of us? I represent the kingdom of God. You can't be, you can't be the Messiah, right? <clears throat> the, the, the priests felt that they were already in the Messianic era. The Pharisees wanted a scholar uh, king, a scholar Messiah, one who would adjudicate law like them. The Essenes wanted an apocalyptic figure uh, and to uh, uh, lift up ritual purity very high. The Zealots wanted a military messiah that would kick the Romans out. And Yeshua's not willing to be any of these. So there's the filter. If you're not one of us, you can't be him. Right? You can't be him. You're supposed to be here to help us get rid of the Romans and keep us in power. And Yeshua is saying, you know what? Your hearts are corrupted. You've been corrupted by money and by power and a false reliance on the Torah saving you. When it cannot save you from sin, it can only point sin out, right? And I've come to point that out, and you don't like it, but that's the truth. That's why the common people, seeing all this corruption, the common people, the Scripture says, heard him gladly. They fought. In the first century, there were over 100,000 Jewish believers in Jesus. It's amazing. I call him Yeshua. His name means redemption. So filters are very important, right? The Presbyterian wants a Presbyterian Messiah. The Baptist wants a Baptist Messiah. Lutheran wants a Lutheran Messiah. Luther, are you gonna, Lutheran says to the Messiah, you're going to accentuate uh, sovereignty? Well, it, I'll, I'll talk about sovereignty, but I represent the kingdom of God. Up, oh, can't have that. Got to accent sovereignty. Baptist, how about baptism? You're going to accent baptism? Well, uh, baptism is important, but I'm going to represent the kingdom of God. Up. Oh, Forget it. Presbyterian, everybody's got covenant theology. Well, covenant theology has some good things, but I represent the kingdom of God. I represent the forgiveness of sin and the reconnection of, uh, of the Father to his children. You see? So the filter can preclude people from recognizing who he really is. Nathaniel finally gets it. Others finally get it, right? 
So that's the reason. And how did you get it? How did you get it? What happened? I, well, the story, I, I, as I said before, I got it through baseball. What are you laughing for? I got it through baseball. It's a serious, right? Uh, I was born in Europe. I came over here and uh, to this country. We were members of the Orthodox Jewish synagogue. And uh, so I grew up in that. We weren't that Orthodox. We didn't, weren't that practicing, especially when my mom had to uh, work. We became less and less observant. But you're Orthodox if you belong to the Orthodox synagogue. And, and I had Orthodox friends and so forth and so on. And one day I met a fellow <clears throat> who was a Christian. And I didn't know what a Christian was. Uh, and he introduced me to uh, a Bible study on Friday night. Friday night was my Shabbat, my Sabbath. So good, I'm coming to the Bible study. I'm learning about this guy, Jesus. I, I didn't know who Jesus was. I heard a couple of people saying his name every once in a while in a bad way, but I, did, I really didn't know who he was. Uh, I knew him by a different name. Had I known that Jesus was that guy, I would, never went to, I would have never gone to the Bible study. But I didn't know. And I wanted to keep playing baseball with this guy. All right? So baseball's an important part of this testimony. So finally, one night, about a year, I guess a year later, they asked me if I wanted to accept Jesus as my personal savior. And by that time, I knew the lingo, and I thought, Jesus, you know, is a cool guy. I mean, I knew the Jewish community, and I knew the, uh, the money ruled it, and I knew what went on, and I knew how things worked, and I knew that if anybody brought up uh, that things were done in an unrighteous way, that they would soon be quenched, and uh, that people didn't like for people to make waves about what's godly, what's not godly. You come to synagogue, you pray, you pay your dues, you get your ticket for Yom Kippur, you come to the bar mitzvah, you come to the wedding, so forth and so on. Just don't make waves, right? Status quo. So Jesus seemed to muck it up. And, and what he was saying seemed so true that I said, yes, I want to accept that. And then I, then I went home to tell my family the good news. <laughs> and for some reason, they just didn't, they weren't happy. But it worked out. I finally found the Messianic congregation, and that helped stabilize me, and I stuck with it from 1964 ever since. What do you most want Christians to know about Jews? Are there common misconceptions? Well, first of all, only about 70%, if it's that high, uh, of Jews are really religious, Orthodox Jews. The rest are non-Orthodox Jews. The fastest growing Judaism in Judaism is Reformed Judaism, and you know that Reformed Judaism doesn't even believe in God. Uh, they certainly don't believe that the scriptures were written by God, uh, inspiration by God. Uh, they believe it's a moral code and so forth and so on, that the stories are legends and so forth and so on. It's the fastest growing Judaism, but only 14% of Reformed Jews go to synagogues. That should tell you something. It's, it's the belonging, isn't it? All right? So that's the first thing. Second of all, most Jews, even religious Jews, do not know the scriptures. We think, oh, a Jewish person, the chosen people, they must be studying the scriptures all the time from the use of, they don't. So that's the second thing. They don't know the scriptures. Do not assume that they know the scriptures. Uh, we should, uh, you should, but they don't know the scriptures. They need somebody to introduce them. And the third thing is this. When a Jew sees a cross, he sees 2,000 years of persecution against Jews by Christians. When a Jew hears the name, a Jewish person hears the name Jesus or Christ, it means uh, persecution by Christians. It means the Gentile God. Some Christians believe that Christ is come for the Gentiles and the Jews have Moses and they can get saved through Moses. 
which is a terrible thing. It's absolutely untrue. It's not, we all have to come by the same path through the Messiah, Yeshua. So I think the misconceptions are you don't realize what that name means to Jewish people. You don't realize what that cross represents to Jewish people. And you don't realize they don't know anything. They don't know, uh, they, all they know is Jesus is not for them. So when they see your transformed life, your connection, they see a person that does not take offense but goes to God and forgives and releases people. A person who does not live like everybody else, they notice that like anybody else would notice it, and down the road they want that. That's what they want. They want to look, they want to see in you what the nations should have seen in Israel. What a wise person. What a marvelous life you're living connected to him. I think that's what I want Christians to know. Thank you. Um, Jesus said, I will build my church. And he didn't say, I will build my synagogue. What's the significance of I will build my church? A synagogue is a place of like-minded people. This is a synagogue in the truest sense. It's not, it's not a Jewish synagogue, but it's a synagogue. You're all like-minded, right? But the church, which is a 16th century, I think, Anglo-Saxon term, uh, really uh, stems from ecclesia, which I'm sure you know. Uh, called out in Peter, called out the called out ones. Called out of darkness into a glorious light. He's going to build it. See, the kingdom of heaven is bursting out on the earth. What is the kingdom of heaven? In the kingdom of heaven, nobody doubts God. Nobody questions God. Everybody believes him. There's harmony there. There's cooperation. There's love ruling there. There's no sickness there. And so that's bursting in on the earth. Take a look at why Yeshua says, I call him Yeshua, Jesus. Yeshua says, it's important, it's mandatory that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. So when Yeshua was on the earth, you had to go to where he was, right? That's the story of Zacchaeus climbing up in the tree. You had to go to where he was. But look at this. He goes away. He sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Look how many of you there is for people to encounter Jesus. He's building the kingdom of God on the earth. You are the tangent. This is a great building, right? But the, pil the building houses the people, the tangent that heaven meets earth. People of the earth can encounter God in your midst and with you individually multiple times and in multiple ways. I don't know how many people are here, but that many people can encounter people and the kingdom of God is built on the foundation of Yeshua, his death and atonement, his resurrection and newness of life, and the transformation of the inner man. And we're multiplying that all the time. Mm. I know how you answered this, but I'm going to ask it again. Do you have a question for God, or do you have questions that you just know someday God has to answer for you? Um, I'm going to modify it a little bit. Uh, the questions I have are about Scripture, or why did I react that way? Uh, or, Lord, um, uh, my wife who is here, Carol, uh, said that I'm carnal in this area. <laughs> and uh, am I? It feels like she's right. In, in what, those, are, those would be questions. But the grand question, God, why didn't you heal? Why didn't you do this? Why do you allow evil? Those grand questions in my 
view. And, and you can have those questions, but I don't want those questions anymore because for me, they take God down here as if he's equal to me. As if now I can ask the eternal, I can't even cure the common cold and I'm going to ask him about his work. So I don't have any questions. I feel like when we're going to get there, it'll all just work out because we'll see him as he is. We'll be like him, see him as he is. We'll understand perfectly. I'm not going to question the internal. I'm going to have a relationship and be loved by him, become love. And I really believe this, folks. It's not a platitude. Receiving love, becoming love, and disseminating love has become the most important thing for me. Right? And uh, so the questions are not that important anymore. That's my answer. What is prayer? Prayer is a commune in the Holy Spirit with God the Father through the work of Jesus the Son. And that commune can be a request, but I never want to run to him in crisis. Crisis developed, I run to, develop, I run to him in hopes that he's there. You ever feel that? I want to commune with him so when the crisis hits, I'm prepared. I want to commune with him often. He, he actually, I've, I've discovered, and, and through others teaching this, I should have known it, God actually likes getting together with us. He loves to communicate with us. He loves to talk with us. He enjoys that time with us, wants that time with us. And get this, folks, he not only loves you, but can you accept this? He actually likes you. I think that's cool. That is cool. Um, last question. You've been with this community today. You've been here other times. Tell this community what you think of them. I think you're gorgeous. <laughs> the people on your staff have the best spirit. Beautiful. I could see it. It emanates from them. And when I see uh, Michael and the congregants interact, it's real love. It's genuine love. You have become love as a congregation. Individually, I don't know you. Maybe there's a lot of work to be done there. I don't know. But as a community, this is really a community of love, and I really enjoy being here with you. Rabbi Thank Joseph Rosenfarb. Okay. Lord, it's uh, not about us. It's about you and about our connection. Thank you, God, for this day of communing with you corporately, practicing the kingdom of God. That's what we're doing here. And we bless you in it, O oh God, receiving love, becoming love, and demonstrating love, manifesting the kingdom of God everywhere we go. We thank you for the privilege of partner, partnering with you in it. In Yeshua's name, bless this church. Bless its leadership. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe.